Greetings, ghost family. Welcome to Family Ghosts. Today's story begins in Blackhawk. Blackhawk is a gated community in Danville, California. It sits at the foot of Mount Diablo, which I later learned was almost renamed Mount Ronald Reagan. I visited recently and met up with a real estate agent named Juju Chawla. Hi, Sam. Hi. She's got a personalized license plate on her Audi Q7 that yeah, says just Juju. I like your, um, your license plate. Oh, yeah. I asked her to show me around, and we spent an afternoon driving slowly through the neighborhood. I was mesmerized by the sprawling, majestic lawns, densely planted with palm trees and lavender. So that house shed ahead of me up there, mm-hmm. that you see with the Infinity Edge pool, so wow. that's on the market for $18 million right now. For the record... Not every house in Blackhawk costs $18 million. But to give you a feel for the neighborhood, one of the driveways we passed had four cars in it. A Mercedes, a Ferrari, a Land Rover, and an Escalade. Juju explained that the residents of Blackhawk take the beauty of their neighborhood very seriously. Oh wow, that one's really beautiful. He's very, he's very particular about his landscaping because he doesn't like brown spots. He'd individually water the brown spots. And it's not just lawn care. A longtime resident named Susan explained that even Halloween comes with grand expectations. There's a huge house at the end of that cul-de-sac that gave away one-pound bags of M&Ms, which became this mega draw for everyone to the point that you were getting, I think uh, I heard like over 2,000 trick-or-treaters. Does that mean they were giving away 2,000 pounds? Yes, a literal ton of M&Ms, yes. So that's Blackhawk, the gem of the golden foothills of Mount Diablo, rife with luxury cars and limitless candy, bedazzled with meticulously watered lawns, drought be damned. Or, as local reporter Liz Shamaria put it, My sense of Blackhawk is that it's this place where you go through the gates and you can just pretend like everything's perfect. So, as you're probably already aware, you're listening to the premiere of the first full season of Family Ghosts. Our pilot episode, The Family Jewels, was about me investigating a mystery that's been lurking in the shadows of my family for many years. And when we began to think about the challenge of how to adapt our format for a full season of stories from other families, we thought a lot about what our role should be in those episodes. As you'll see, we found that the answer was different for every family. And over the course of the season, you'll hear a slightly different approach every week. But we're going to start with a story from Kayla. Kayla's story is what brought me to Blackhawk. It's where she grew up. Kayla's 29. She's witty, sarcastic and friendly. These days, she lives in Brooklyn, where she has what she calls a quintessential hipster life. She works at a magazine, she drinks a lot of kombucha, she's a sometimes stand-up and writer, and she knows what it's like to pretend everything is perfect. You would have no idea that we come from such a volatile family, Um, like so much trauma and tragedy, or I guess I should just combine those two words at this point, like trauma Her good humor and sunny disposition are part of the way she deals with a tragedy that decimated her family. The more I talked to Kayla, the more this disconnect became apparent. I don't want to hurt anybody. I don't want people to be hurt by my hurt. But what about the effect the story has on Kayla? That's what makes her story a perfect fit for our show. 
Our goal is to transform burdens into talismans, to connect with the truth behind these family stories, and maybe unlock a deeper understanding of ourselves. And so, without further ado, from Panoply, you're listening to Family Ghosts. I'm Sam Dingman, and this is Episode 2, No Brown Spots. The night of June 22, 2010, I was turning my closet upside down, trying to find the perfect leotard to wear to a rave. I was 22 years old, living in a frat house in Berkeley, taking a summer class about World War I and interning on a campaign. My hair was this horrible, fried, bleach blonde, and I listened to techno music, voluntarily. I didn't know it, but this was the night that everything would change. 20 miles east at Kayla's family home in Blackhawk, Nikki, her mom, Rob, her dad, and her brother, Ben, were having what they thought was a typical evening, too. They went out to dinner, they came home, they watched TV for a while, until Ben and her dad started to doze off. I remember Mommy came in, she kissed me, and she went and kissed Ben, and then she said she was going to Safeway, and I heard the door slam, you know, to the garage. That's the last thing Kayla's dad remembers before it happened. We have new information on the fire in an exclusive East Bay community overnight. The fire destroyed a mansion on Deer Meadow Drive in Blackhawk. KTV's Tara Moriarty joins us from the area now. While Kayla slept, her family was in the middle of a nightmare. I woke up, you know, the ceiling was on fire, the floor was on fire, the walls were on fire, the bed was on fire, I was on fire. Meanwhile, out on Deer Meadow Drive, a chaotic scene was unfolding. What I heard, I will never forget, was your mom. I just heard her scream, and I'm like, oh, God. Kayla's neighbor Susan, the one who told me about the M&Ms, came running out of her house and found Kayla's mom, Nikki, just back from the grocery store, shouting at the firefighters who were struggling to subdue the flames. I heard her say, my son and my husband, you don't understand, my son and my husband are in that house. Kayla's sister Beth, who lived a few miles away, arrived on the scene. She and Susan guided the frantic Nikki to Susan's porch, where Nikki chain-smoked and watched helplessly as the firefighters charged into the burning house. They found Rob in the master bedroom shower, unconscious, without a pulse, and they airlifted him to the Santa Clara burn unit. But they couldn't find Ben. Susan called Kayla's sister, Sarah, in Washington, D.C. I said, listen, I don't want to upset you, but, you know, Ben's missing. Is there any place he would have gone to? Because I didn't, I, I, I wasn't willing to accept anything. Sarah hadn't been able to sleep that night. And just when she was finally starting to doze off, she got Susan's phone call. And I remember just thinking in that moment, like, just check the backyard. I'm sure he's in the backyard. I know my brother. I know he would have escaped out the window. Please just check the backyard. I'm positive he's hiding in the backyard and is just scared. So when I woke up the next morning, everything was really calm. There was sunlight pouring into my room, and I thought maybe I would go sunbathing that morning or go for a run. And then I noticed my friend Nicole's name light up on my crappy flip phone. It was really early in the morning, about 6.30, and I thought that was weird, so I picked up. And my heart pretty much stopped because you said, Hi, Nicole! And I thought, oh my God, she has 
no idea what's going on. I don't know why she doesn't know, but I know she doesn't know because Kayla wouldn't answer that way if she knew. Nicole tells me about this news report and about a fire that she thinks happened at my house. And I think it's some big mix-up. So I get off the phone with her and I call my sister Sarah in D.C. And she's boarding a flight out to California. And here I am in this frat house wearing a stupid more cowbell t-shirt. And that's when Sarah confirmed my worst possible fears. Uh, Neighbors are expressing shock and sadness over the death of the 19-year-old son who was found in his bedroom close to where the fire began. Three dozen firefighters responded to the scene. After that, all I remember was screaming. A little after midnight, the firefighters finally put out the last of the flames. The fire was over. But the nightmare of June 22, 2010 has haunted Kayla for the last seven years. According to the official report from the San Ramon Valley Fire Department, it's unclear what happened that night. The report concludes that the fire could have started in the attic. There had been a service guy from AT&T at the house earlier that day. Or in her mom's office on the first floor, which had tons of loose paperwork everywhere, and Nikki was a smoker. But to quote from the official report, the fire cause was classified as undetermined. The report also says, again quoting, The fire investigation team observed no obvious evidence or indication that this was an intentionally set fire. But I disagree. Something's never sat right with me about the night of June 22, 2010. I've spent the last few months talking to family members, neighbors, and friends of Ben, trying to figure out if my dark suspicion is true. My brother's death was no accident. The mystery of what happened to Ben is the burden Kayla walks around with every day. And in case you're having trouble understanding what that's like for her, think about how many situations there are where people casually ask you to talk about your family. In the office elevator before the holidays, chatty customer service representatives, small talk at dinner parties. Like if I'm on a first date and somebody asks about them, like how many siblings do you have? I usually just say I have two older sisters. It doesn't seem like the right moment to say my brother died in a terrible house fire that started under mysterious circumstances. And even when I have told people, they get pretty creeped out. They try to change the subject. They say things like, oh, that sounds like something in a movie you saw. So mostly I keep it to myself. And I don't mention I have a brother. And that feels wrong, too. It feels like I'm putting on a face where I'm this bubbly and charming and positive person, but that's not true. That feels dishonest. And it's a feeling that I'm really familiar with. It feels like how I felt throughout most of my childhood. To really understand where I'm coming from, you've got to meet my family. You've already heard from my eldest sister, Sarah. She's the one who so desperately wanted Ben to be hiding in the backyard. She's got a head of vibrant blonde curls and this big megawatt smile, and naturally she was president of her sorority. And from the outside looking in, she's the type of chick you see on Instagram at a charity gala in a designer dress or posting one of those sunsets filtered 15 ways to the weekend. And it's easy to assume she's basic. 
but Sarah's also really smart and really resilient. And then there's Beth. <laughs> um, how would you describe our relationship? Uh, I don't know. It's okay. You can tell the listeners at home that you hate me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't hate you, but we fought a lot in the past. We're getting better. We're working on it. Yeah. Every day. Every day. Every podcast interview at every wedding. Beth has no filter. She tells it exactly how it is, whether it's nice or not. It drives me crazy, but sometimes I wish I was more like her. We've all been through a lot, and I don't know where I'd be without my sisters. Before my dad was the improbable survivor of a devastating house fire, he was a locally renowned allergist in Danville with a TV show. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Ask the Doctor. I'm Dr. Rob Litme, your moderator and medical commentator this evening. Our topic tonight is women's health. Sure, it was cable access, but people really actually watched it. My dad's specialty were these custom allergy shots. He genuinely improved a lot of people's lives. On every episode of Ask the Doctor, he would take calls from viewers. There was this one woman who called in pretty regularly. We're going to call her. We have Rachel from Danville. Rachel, you're on the air. Good evening, doctors. I have a question. I have a good friend that recently had her first baby. Um, The baby's about six weeks old. uh, Rachel really loved calling in. And that's because Rachel is actually my mom, Nikki. It's my feeling that she has a case of severe maybe postpartum depression. Rachel, we just talked about postpartum depression. My mom liked to make sure my dad had enough callers to keep the show running smoothly. That's how my mom rolled. She made things happen. When she wasn't calling my dad under an alias, she was running his medical office. My mom and dad were quite the team. My dad would sit at the dining room table customizing his serums while my mom was in her office on the first floor of the house chain-smoking and binge-watching Fox News while she processed insurance claims. You probably would have heard from my mom by now, but about nine months after the fire killed my brother, she died from breast cancer. Sounds like a pretty rough year. Oh yeah, it was fucked up, Sam. And then there was Ben. Ben was our baby. Most of my memories of Ben are of us running around outside or playing video games. We would sit around and power-read Harry Potter books together and try to see who could finish the books first. I'd turn to him and ask, what page are you on? And he'd always be way ahead of me. And it wasn't just reading. The family's piano teacher, Ina, told us Ben also had a special kind of focus when it came to music. Before recital, people play one time and said, okay, I'm okay. And he started to play and repeat and repeat. I said, Ben, enough. No, he repeated again. I want to do it better. I want to do it better. I want to do it better. When Ben got into his teens, he started writing and recording his own songs. He'd vanish into his room for days at a time, recording hours and hours of complex, multi-layered pieces, featuring himself on piano, guitar, synthesizer, and vocals. I 
have all these G-chats from Ben, where I got this other side to him. He sent me links to his music and recommended that I listen to bands like Animal Collective, Velvet Underground, Neutral Milk Hotel. The morning he was buried, I snuck a few things into his casket, including but not limited to all of his favorite records on vinyl and an eighth of California's finest kush. He was always a deep feeler, and the way he was able to get that out is through his music. After he died, I stopped listening to music for almost two years. I would drive in silence to and from work. The more I heard about Kayla's family, the more I realized there was another character in the story. Kayla's house. I've seen photographs of it from before the fire. It was stunning. 5,600 square feet of intricate stonework with manicured bushes and a sprawling backyard. It literally had a turret, like the kind on a castle. And that's why her parents bought it. Her mom in particular wanted a palace. And from the outside, that's what it was. But on the inside, not so much. It's just, it was gross. I mean, it wasn't even, it was borderline like a health hazard. I don't uh, even, wouldn't even call it unclean. It was more than that, wouldn't you say? It was a health hazard, I would there say. There was like, you would walk in the house and there would be like dog stuff. Um, nobody would be dog shit. <laughs> dog <laughs> shit. Like. My sisters and I used to call our house the ashtray. The stench of my mother's cigarettes was impossible to avoid. I used to get called into the principal's office because my clothes reeked of smoke. We used to hold these big Hanukkah and birthday parties, but before we could, the house would need to be scrubbed down. My mom was obsessed with this idea of sophistication. We didn't go to amusement parks. We went to the symphony. That's why we lived in a castle. She had these ideas of propriety, of being cultured, but really... Our home was full of dog shit, and we had to pretend like this wasn't happening. And one of the things I felt like my parents thought they had to hide was Ben. His friends noticed it first. When he was about 15 years old, Ben started to go from passionate to paranoid. Graham, one of his close friends, says at first it was subtle. He would just say little things like, Hmm, the sky looks really weird, and I would look up and it would be a beautiful baby blue California day. But soon, Sarah noticed Ben's fears were getting more intense, too. At one point, he took a dresser and, like, barricaded his door in his bedroom because he thought the, that, you know, I don't know, that the terrorists were coming to get him and that there was a bomb in the backyard. And so it was just sort of this extremely abrupt shift. In this weird way, he sort of, like... He lumped me in with, like, the, the government. To be fair, Sarah did work for the government at this point. In PR. When I came home that last time in May, he thought that I was there on behalf of the White House, like, tapping his phone. I remember he went and told Dad, and my dad came in and was like, what are you doing? Ben says you're rewiring the house. And I'm like, I wouldn't even know how to rewire the house if someone taught me, you know? I'm making a phone call. Like, that's all I'm doing. And to me, it was just like this, this, the pinnacle of the craziness. In the spring of 2010, a few months before the fire, Ben reconnected with Jeff 
an old friend from middle school. Jeff says it was clear Ben was in a dark place. I remember even like cleaning his room with them and stuff. Really? Yeah. (laughs) That's so nice. I wish my friends would come over and help me clean my room. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you don't have like buckets of pee with mold and stuff. What? Nothing. (laughs) Would he pee in buckets? Yeah, well, stuff, stuff like that would become like I felt like hazardous to like safety. There was some stuff in his room like that where it was like pretty mandatory, I felt, to get it out of there. Like he'd keep his urine or keep um, bodily things. I had no idea about the peeing in the buckets. I was away at college. But I knew things were getting really bad when I came home for Thanksgiving and Ben was missing all of his front teeth. I mean, we had always been candy and soda kids, but this was more than bad brushing. This was definitely something else. And when I asked my parents about it, they were like, don't bring it up. He's self-conscious about it as it is. Don't make it worse by asking questions. My mom at this point was running my dad's business and simultaneously undergoing chemo and radiation. And my dad, well, he was just trying to escape all of this entirely. He would put on these noise-canceling headphones and watch movies all night. He would get eight Netflix DVDs one day, and he would return eight Netflix DVDs the next day. Ben's illness was just another thing my parents thought that they could tune out, scrub away. If they pretended it wasn't real, maybe it would just disappear. But Ben's issues weren't going anywhere. In fact, they got worse. He started to hallucinate. It was June of 2010, a few weeks before the fire. And for a few weeks now, Ben had been regularly calling 911 to report these imagined break-ins, terror attacks, surveillance of the family's house in Black Hawk. Finally, Beth told us, the cops intervened. I think they told him, like, no one's here, you're fine. And he said, no, I don't feel safe here. Somebody's break going to break in. I don't, something like that. And then I think they took him away and he went to this place. The technical term for what happened next is involuntary commitment. It's commonly referred to in California as being 5150'd. And it's what happens when authorities decide someone suspected to have a mental disorder is a danger to themselves or others. The place the cops took Ben to was a nearby mental hospital, where the doctors told Kayla's dad they thought Ben was suffering from paranoid schizophrenia. For the two weeks he was in the hospital, Ben finally started receiving consistent mental health treatment. He actually told his friend Alex that he kind of liked it there. He was like they had a piano there, and I got to play piano, and like one of the nurses said that I reminded her of Beethoven. <laughs> I thought that was super cool. Just saw him like jamming out in a in this hospital, like being like, "I'm weird, whatever." <laughs> like, yeah. I'm fucking Ben. Like you've, you've never met anyone like me. <laughs> Beth told us Kayla's mom was mortified that her only son, her baby boy, had been institutionalized. Beth went to see Ben at the mental hospital a few days before the fire, on Father's Day. And she said that afterwards, Nikki quizzed her relentlessly about the visit. She was, like, upset and saying how she felt like her son had died and did he look like he fit in there. Like, did he look like he belonged there? Like, was he like all the other people there? Was he the same as them? I remember my phone conversations with my mom while Ben was in the hospital. She kept repeating, I feel like I've lost his son. I told her, Mom, no, this is a good thing. He's getting help. 
but she just kept repeating over and over again like a mantra. I feel like I've lost a son. Several people told us Ben's confinement was too much for Nikki to bear. She called the mental hospital every day. And finally, on June 22, 2010, the day of the fire, she persuaded them to release Ben into her care. Nikki went to the hospital first thing in the morning to pick Ben up. Do you know what that day was like for Ben? Well, he went to Target. My mom let him get whatever he wanted, which included a new DVD player and a stack of new PlayStation games. It sounded like a pretty good day. I mean, it kind of sounded like a dream day. Except for a seemingly innocuous visit from the cable company. According to the fire report, an AT&T representative arrived at the house at 2.10 p.m. As Ben told Alex on the phone later that day, the cable guy looked suspicious to Ben, like someone he'd seen on the Internet in pictures with a girl Ben had a crush on. So he had thought, like, okay, there's some, like, weird collusion here of, like, this, like, there's they're conspiring against Ben kind of thing. And yeah. this kid worked for this company and then came over and then, like, uh, you know, was, like, asked him a strange question and was, like, do you have a cigarette? We'll never know if that was true. But what we do know is that eventually the cable guy left and Nikki coaxed Ben out of his bedroom for a meal at his favorite restaurant, Pasta Pomodoro, with her and Rob. And then we had dinner, and then Ben and I went to uh, Long's, and we got his medicines. And uh, they had prescribed a number of medicines that are used to treat schizophrenia. I gave him the medicines that night, and he didn't seem to me to be particularly upset. I mean, he seemed to be calm. But is that a coincidence that he just came home that day and that night the house burned down? I remember that a lot of people immediately suspected that Ben started the fire. Ben's friend said that he told them he'd started experimenting with hard drugs, the kind that make you behave kind of erratically. Neighbors speculated that Ben had a secret meth lab in the attic and that the fire started because it exploded. Then there was the Facebook message that one of his friends sent me, where he described feeling trapped in the house, how he was, quote, literally dying in this environment. And it went into detail about how he was contemplating killing himself. It was painful for me to know that my brother was in such a dark and depressing place, that the last few months of his life wasn't just pee and buckets and missing teeth and hallucinations. He was a captive of his own mind and a captive in that house. I can see how people think it was Ben. When you add it all up, mental illness, paranoia, and at least one documented instance where he told a friend he wanted to kill himself. But I don't believe it. I don't believe it, not for one second. I'm confident that my brother didn't start the fire. When someone has the kind of mood swings that my brother had, you want to believe in the person they are on their best day and question the person they seem like on their worst. And from everything I've learned about Ben's last day, it wasn't a burn-the-house-down day. Even if he felt suicidal sometimes and was an outsider in the community, he put his mania into his music, and his music gave him hope. You can hear it on one of the last songs he ever wrote. 
I'll admit that when Kayla first told me her story, my first thought was Ben, too. It just seemed like too much of a coincidence. A paranoid, emotionally troubled kid with a history of volatile behavior gets plucked out of a mental institution in the middle of his treatment, and the house goes up in flames that same night? It was certainly a tragedy, but it didn't seem like much of a mystery. But Rob told us that Ben's outlook might not have been as bleak as it seems. Not too long before the fire, Ben asked him for $3,000 to travel to New Mexico and record his songs in a professional studio. Ben believed in some kind of future for himself. His friend Graham told us he didn't think Ben was a lost cause, just someone who needed to do his own thing. Ben, to me, seemed like the guy that I would go to see in, like, Bolivia one day, who, like, had a (laughs) weird recording studio, and he'd wear, like, a big Hawaiian t-shirt. Like, I don't know, I always figured that that would be Ben. And then there's the other thing Ben told Alex on the phone that day, about the strength of the medication they'd prescribed him at the hospital. I remember him even saying something like, if I take this, like, I won't wake up, basically. Like, I could literally sleep through anything. Like, I could sleep through an earthquake. I called my dad because I wanted to ask him, do you think Ben was capable of this? What are you doing? Uh, Actually, I just watched the movie. It was kind of (laughs) weird. And after 20 minutes of small talk, I finally asked. Do you think he could have had something to do with the fire? Oh, that, that of course has crossed my mind because I think that his depression was well known, but I wasn't aware that he had discussed the possibility of terminating his life with anybody. Yeah. If Ben somehow in his particular state of figured, you know, this is a ball game, I'm back home and it's still a shithole here, I'll just light the place up. Well, that, that was his possible scenario. But I really didn't think that's what happened. My dad actually seemed to believe Ben's paranoia was real, that somebody really was out to get Ben, and that they set the fire. And Ben was terrified of this. This was about, I'd say, two weeks before the fire. And I remember checking, you know, the doors, make sure that everything was locked, and that kind of stuff, and the dogs were there. And you know what? I don't think that idea is that far-fetched either. I think someone was out to get my brother, just not some kid from the neighborhood. This is the part where I tell you my theory. I think my mom started the fire. After the break, we'll meet Kayla's mom. Hello, ghost family. The show will continue in just a moment, but since the topic of suicide comes up in this episode, we wanted to make sure that everyone was aware of the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which you can call anytime at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. If you're worried about yourself or someone you know, please give them a call. It's a free 24-7 service, and it can provide support, information, and local resources. Since we're also talking about mental illness in this story, I also wanted to personally recommend a really amazing podcast called Mental Illness Happy Hour. It's hosted by Paul Gilmartin, and I think it's incredible from both a content and service point of view. If you yourself are struggling with mental illness, or if someone you care about is, and you want to have a better understanding of their experience, you should check it out. 
The show features long, extraordinarily candid interviews where guests vividly share their journeys through trauma, addiction, and various forms of mental illness. But Paul also creates space for listeners to share their own stories, and he handles every single letter with grace, sensitivity, and compassion. It's a place to find community around really tough stuff, not to mention a deeply engaging emotional experience. And that's about the most you could possibly hope to get out of a podcast, in my opinion. Find Mental Illness Happy Hour wherever you get your podcasts. I've never really talked about this theory to anyone because I was afraid. Afraid that people would think I was a monster for thinking my mother could have done this. That I'm conspiratorial or an armchair psychoanalyst. And I was afraid that if people did believe me that this was true, then they'd think I was crazy like her. That the apple doesn't fall that far from the tree. From my first conversation with Kayla, it was clear that her mom was a complicated figure. Before the family moved west, Nikki was one of the first female licensed stockbrokers in New York State. One of Kayla's earliest memories of Nikki is watching her sitting at the kitchen table, chain-smoking and trading stocks on the phone. She got into it before she met Rob, when she was in her early 20s. Around this time, she rented a room from her friend Andrea's parents. Andrea describes Nikki as this fun and almost mythic presence in her family's house. She would have this green, furry bathrobe, and her hair would be like out to here. And she'd come down her cellar stairs through the basement and up our cellar stairs for coffee. Cigarettes one hand, coffee cup in the other, and her hair out to here. And every time she walked by the piano when she was at the house, she would always play it. And her piano was right against the stairs, and that adjoined our living room. You could hear right through the wall, and she'd play all the time. My mother was a classically trained concert pianist. I'd come home from school, and before I could even open the door, I'd hear her playing Bach or Chopin all the way from the curb. But towards the end of her life, when the breast cancer spread to her bones and her hands swelled up, she had to stop playing the piano. And it was weird to come home and not be greeted by music. I never met any woman who had so many qualities. Nikki took lessons from Ina, the piano teacher we met earlier, for almost 20 years. Ina told us Nikki was her hero. She cooked like professional cook. She played piano like professional. She did her father's office like professional. So she did everything high quality. But Ina could tell that there was more to the story with Nikki than the whirlwind of talent and intelligence most of her friends experienced. She told us Nikki always wanted to learn dark, somber Rachmaninoff pieces. I said, Nikki, I cannot play this for a long time because it's very depressing for me. I want some more light. And she said, but no, I love it. Music started when words cannot express. So for her was when words cannot express her mind, music started. Even though Kayla harbors this troubling suspicion, it's not as though she doesn't recognize her mom's positive qualities. I miss my mom, but it's hard for me to think about her. She was witty and generous and ambitious 
anything she went after she got. The version of her most people remember is great. But as Sarah described, at home, it was a different story. First, there was the smoking. You've already heard about how overwhelming the smell was. But Sarah told us it was more than that. For Nikki, smoking was about control. She would pack the four of us in her suburban, and she would smoke with the windows closed. You know, and we would all beg and beg and beg to ask her not to do it. And her response would always be something along the lines of, well, if you don't like it, you can just get out and you can walk the five miles to school. And then there were the nicknames. She always used to call me Big Shot. So I was like the big shot of the family who had all these friends and did everything well and loved school. And I remember I like won first place at some award for the most amount of sales. And my mom just was so upset about it to the point where she literally took away my keys and wouldn't like I went, tried to go to work the next morning and I couldn't find my keys. And she was like, you're not going. And so in a way it was like I was I, I was demeaned for for being that way and for, you know, thriving in ways that I thought were supposed to be good. My mom had special nicknames for all of her kids. As Sarah described, she was big shot because she was too successful. Beth was freak show because she had no filter. Ben was baby because he was the youngest and sometimes overly sensitive. He would tear up over small things. I was retard because I was the dumb one who couldn't get long division on my first try. And she would use these nicknames so often that we would respond to them. She'd say, hey, retard, set the table. And I'd be like, right on top of that, mom. A lot of her verbal abuse was this warped attempt to get us to be better, to keep us striving for this idea of perfection that didn't really exist. As a kid, if I expressed unhappiness or dissatisfaction, even through a poorly timed eye roll, she'd say angrily, do you feel deprived? Look around you, you have all of these nice things. Do you feel like you don't get enough? After our interview with Ina, Kayla and I were talking in our rental car, and I was trying to make sense of these conflicting versions of Nikki. On the one hand, she was this incredibly ambitious musical virtuoso. And on the other... She was someone Kayla thinks might have purposely set their house on fire. And then Kayla told me a really awful story about a time she came home from school with a bad grade on a geometry test. That night, Kayla was sitting in her room when her mom burst open the door in a fit of rage. I remember she, it's like she picked me up by the shoulders and like threw me against the wall in my bedroom. And it like... It was like the whole side of my face and neck like thrashed into the wall. And I had this pink flower wallpaper on the wall, which, you know, she was always decorating the house and like that was important to her. And I remember part of the wallpaper started to like tore off in the place where she like thrown me against the wall. So it was forceful. Yeah, that's terrible. Yeah, it was bad. So it was either authoritarian rule where everything we did was monitored, or it was total neglect for our well-being. There was no middle ground. I also talked to my uncle Mitch, who reminded me that it wasn't just difficult to be my mother's daughter. Being her sibling was like walking through a minefield. 
very volatile and very you know, anger would yeah. present itself and and then the loudness of the voice and then the vulgarities of the words would come out and we've all you know we've all experienced it and then she'd stomp off and and then a day or two later it was like nothing happened she left an impression that made you very hesitant so you became guarded Though my mom was never formally diagnosed, I've had therapists tell me they think it's likely she was struggling with bipolar disorder or maybe even a borderline personality disorder. And though she didn't have hallucinations like Ben, it seems clear that she was living in fear of something. Whatever she was hiding from, when it got too close, she would panic and lash out. So when I was 17, I ran away. I booked a one-way ticket to New York and made my way to a little town about an hour north of Syracuse called Watertown. That's where my mom grew up. I guess I needed to find out if that charming, youthful mom I'd heard so much about was real. They had time and, uh, when you came. Oh, and I ran away? Yeah. And it was, oh gosh. We wanted to keep you there. And she wanted to get rid of you. And I'm sorry. I mean, you guys took me in, though. Yeah, but she wanted us to adopt you. Really? Yeah. Really? I had never heard that before, but it's not that surprising. Even though my mom said that, after two weeks, it was like some switch had flipped and she forced me to come home or else she was going to press charges against her own family. I didn't want to go back, but it really wasn't up to me. I was a minor, so I had to fly home and things never got better. They only got worse. Once, my mom and I were talking on the phone while Ben was in the psychiatric hospital, and she went on one of her classic, hyperdramatic outbursts. She was in the middle of her spiel, going on and on about how this wasn't her son. And then she said something that I've never forgotten. She said, Kayla, do you know what happens to people like Ben? They wind up in halfway houses. I grew up near a halfway house, and one time somebody left an iron on, and the whole place burned down. One of the first things that popped into my head after the fire was this memory of my mom talking about what happened at that halfway house. But there were other suspicious things that pointed to her, too, like the groceries. When Sarah and I arrived at the house the day after the fire, My mom's car was packed with food from her trip to Safeway the night before. This is the thing that's never quite sat right with me. My mom had already gone grocery shopping that day. The morning after the fire when I walked through the burnt-out house and opened the fridge, it was packed with all of Ben's favorite foods. There was even a special Welcome Home Ben cake on the first shelf of the fridge. So, if my mom had already been to the grocery store in preparation for Ben's return, then why did she have to go back? 
Was it so she wouldn't be at home when the fire started? And as I started looking into this, I found more evidence to support my theory. I couldn't track anyone down from the San Ramon Fire Department, but I did talk to John Tingatella, a retired firefighter here in New York State. He has more than 40 years of experience investigating structural fires just like mine. I sent him the report and asked him what he made of it. The most amount of damage was the first floor office. So this fire most probably started on the first floor, either in the wall or in the office. My mom's office, where she liked to smoke and work into the wee hours of the night, and where I saw her leave lit cigarettes burning on more than one occasion. There was one other part of the report that John fixated on, an angle Kayla had never considered. When Nikki was interviewed by the firefighters on the scene, they asked her about her trip to Safeway and wanted to know if she had receipts from the purchases she'd made while she was out. The report details everything Nikki told them. And for John, it doesn't quite add up. Now, this is where it becomes a big problem for me. She left the house at 2300. She made one stop to buy cigarettes at the gas station. She goes then to the Safeway store. Now, she's got to walk around the aisles to pick up whatever she's picked up. I don't know if she picked up milk, eggs, but whatever she's picking up for breakfast. So at 2321, she's made the purchase. So we have her going to two places and shopping in 21 minutes, and then the drive home is taking longer than all that. There's no explanation how it come it took from 2321 to 2345. 24 minutes to come home. After more than six months of research and reflection, did my mom do this? Did she, in her warped, irrational mind, conclude that her only son was a lost cause because he was schizophrenic? Did she convince the treatment center to release him into her care and stage the most perfect day, complete with a shopping spree and a welcome home dinner at his favorite restaurant? Then, Knowing that her cancer was terminal and thinking that her son and her husband would be hopeless without her there to take care of everything for them, did she leave the house, knowing that she left a cigarette burning? Somewhere in her mind, did she think if she couldn't have the perfect life, then no one would? And no one would suspect her, an innocent cancer patient, the grieving mother and wife? Or... Did my mom just smoke a few cigarettes and listen to some talk radio before driving home? Did the cable guy who was at the house that afternoon bum a cigarette from Ben? Did he take it up to the attic, puff on it for a while while he fiddled with the wires, stub it out against the wall and flick it into a corner, not realizing it was still burning? The answer is, I don't know. And even after thinking comprehensively about everything, I will never know what happened that night. So what am I left with? Fear. I wanted my family to be able to have a good memory of my mom if they wanted to. I don't want to hurt anybody. I don't want people to be hurt by my hurt. Will they be mad at me for even thinking this? 
I asked the person I was most afraid of talking to, my dad. Do you think mom could have started the fire? No, I, I don't. I really don't. One of these guys accused her of, you know, of possibly being, and she was very upset. And I said, look, you know, my wife didn't start this fire. I've always wondered if mom had, like, did had something to do with it just because I know she was so upset about his diagnosis. That well, mommy was relieved that Ben was home. Yeah. Mommy was much relieved. She told me so. She actually smiled. She said she was she was glad to have her son home. And I told her that I was too. And we had this little conversation right before she left. Do you think I'm a bad person for thinking about these possibilities? No, no. How could you be a bad person? You, you're, you're trying to paint a picture of absolute devastation. Well, right. I think that it's just, like, the whole thing has bothered me. Like, I just don't understand how something so terrible could happen. Mommy was completely innocent. She went to the, to the supermarket to get food. She came back, and the house was burning down. So, I can't believe you survived that. I mean, just having walked to the house. I, I did survive. They couldn't get into where Ben was. The, 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 the hallway ceiling had fallen, and they were able to get into my bedroom. And after a little bit of a search, they found me. And, Daddy, uh, I'm so happy. Daddy, I'm so what? happy you survived because I don't know <laughs> so what I, I. I don't know what I would do without you. No, it'd be a bad situation. After talking to my father, I felt this tremendous sense of relief. True, he didn't believe it was possible that she was capable of it. But that part didn't matter. What mattered was that he didn't judge me for asking the questions. Beth and Sarah were not so receptive to continuing the conversation. For example, their names aren't even Beth and Sarah. After our initial interviews, they both asked me to use aliases for them in the story. I tried Beth on the phone, and she pretty much hung up on me, saying, I'm not comfortable with this conversation. Sarah said that revisiting the story of our brother's death was making her physically ill. She wouldn't even answer my calls or emails or texts or Snapchats. And I get it. For Sarah and Beth, keeping the story inside prevents it from affecting their life on the outside. They have their own ways of coping. Sarah presents a strong face to the world. Beth stays close to home and helps my dad. But I'm sick of having an outside that doesn't match my inside. That's what my mom did. That's why Ben didn't get the care he needed. And that's what's always been hardest about this. If I have one face for the world that's appealing and easygoing and never tell anyone the truth, am I any better than she was? So, last question. On our very first call... Yes. I asked you what the central question is for you in all of this. And you said... Can I, can I live with knowing that she did it? Or can I live with this story knowing that there is no answer to? So, can you live with where we've ended up? I, I can live thinking that my mom caused this fire because I have been living thinking that for seven years. It's always going to be something that's unsettling for me, but I'm not just going to 
leave these loose ends that don't feel right. I think when you decide to not think about something that hurts or something that's painful and you set it aside, it's like a cigarette left to burn. Family Ghosts is hosted and produced by me, Sam Dingman, with Verilyn Williams, Odelia Rubin, and Jason DeLeon. Our story editor is Michaela Bly. Our special guest story editor for this episode is Stephanie Fu. Our show features original music by Louis Guerra and Ben Levin, and our show art is by Paul Glankler. Our managing producer is Mia Lobel, and Andy Bowers is Panoply's chief content officer. Special thanks to Jennifer Trowbridge, Alex Remnick, Rorschach Remnick, Christopher Dugo and Elena Ferrer at Contra Costa TV, Jennifer DeLuca, Leo Zeltzer, Jason Gambrell, Evan Viola, Marissa Martinelli, Jackie Donner, Sarah Bentley, and Lily Tyson. Find our show on Twitter and Instagram at FamGoShow. That's F-A-M-G-H-O show. Or email us at familyghosts at panoply.fm. Thank you so much for listening. Next time on Family Ghosts. I never really liked my name, but I like that it's his name. What if someone stole your grandfather's dead body? But no one in my family knows where he is. Or worse, what if you knew the person who stole it? And from that point, we lost 100% track of it. The Hunt for a Missing Grandfather, next week on the show.